The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Tanya Yuki. She is the CEO and founder of Shareably. Welcome, Tanya. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you for joining me. I am so intrigued by your background. I think as I understand your background, you actually started out as a lawyer. Is that right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. For about a minute or so. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, a lot of, uh, so you go to law school straight out of high school in Australia. So most of the uh, somewhat academic kids either wind up as doctors or lawyers and, and very overqualified for whatever they end up doing next. <laughs> That's funny. So tell us a little bit about Shareably and how you have arrived to kind of founding Shareably. Shareably was really born out of my personal curiosity about why people share content on mobile social platforms. So we began looking mostly at Facebook and Twitter. And of course, now that ecosystem has completely exploded into many, many more platforms, Instagram being probably the most important right now. So that was kind of the, the starting kernel of an idea. But what we've really grown into and, and what we're focused on is measuring the complete industry and the complete marketplace of social media performance. So if you're a brand or a publisher or an influencer anywhere in the world, we measure 53 markets. You can log in and understand how your content is resonating against your audience by platform, what you might not know about your audience that you could use to make more effective videos or more compelling content for them. And then what you need to do next in terms of which platforms to focus on, what formats, you know, in order to drive your particular objectives. So, you know, I think it started as something that was really, gosh, you know, I'm so intrigued as to why people will take this brand video and share it out to everyone they've ever known and loved. Let me understand more about why they do that. And today it really spans a cross-platform measurement, advertising effectiveness, and sort of deep content analytics. Wow, that sounds amazing. And 53 Market is no small feat. That's a lot of content to cover. But look, it sure is. But if you think about it, you know, we're obviously based here in the US and it would be very easy to take a, a US centric view, but I don't have the exact numbers. But if you look at, you know, engagement across most of the social platforms, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of all of that activity is happening here in the US. So, you know, we've always taken a very global approach because even US-based companies may also be trying to understand how the rest of the world works, but we've always thought it was incredibly important to take a global view. Interesting. And have you figured out that, I don't want to say secret sauce, but that consumer motivation to really decide when to actually share content? Because it's like a click of a button, but it's such an important action, right, that advertisers are looking for or brands are looking for among consumers. 
Yeah, so we, uh, we have actually a study that we field uh, pretty much every year to ask consumers that question exactly. It comes down to four baskets of motivation. And we actually partnered for this first wave with Professor Jonah Berger, from, uh, who at the time had written some great research on what makes content spreadable and, and shareable. So we decided to test that against the most shared content in the world and just ask the people why they'd shared it. It really comes down to four baskets of value. The first is this thing called like social proof. And it's basically stuff that makes you look good to others, right? Makes you look smarter, funnier, more caring, more in the know, like all the things that if I share this video with you first and you get it from me, you're going to look at me and go, oh, you know, she really knows what she's doing or she's really savvy, etc." Like a leader of some sort. Yeah, exactly. So that's a very personal motivator. The second is around usefulness. And this is where you have the drivers for things like all of the DIY content, or if you hear about a really great sale or a great new product that you think your friends should try because you've tried it and it's amazing. And that, that sort of comes under this bucket of usefulness. Then you have storytelling because, you know, the human race has um, pretty much evolved because uh, we were able to gather around a campfire and tell stories to one another. Actually, a fun fact on what drove storytelling. So the last time we did a wave of this study, we actually found that uh, for millennials, storytelling was not a useful driver. And I was like, I know. And I was like, oh no, like humanity is going to <laughs> the heck in a handbasket. What's going to happen? What we actually found out was it wasn't that they didn't care about stories. It was that they wanted stories that they could be a part of. So, you know, if it asked your opinion. And then the final driver was emotion. You know, it made you feel happy or empathy or feel inspiration, etc. So those were really, you know, like social proof or social currency, usefulness, storytelling and emotion were the four buckets and then depending on whether it was financial services or a beauty brand or an automotive brand like those four dials got dialed up or dialed down depending on you know which which category you were in and I, I would imagine that the content or the motivation to share content would vary depending on the category per se that we're talking about. Yeah, you're exactly correct. And, you know, and a lot of it was stuff that was, that would might make sense to you. Like, you know, if you're in finance or financial services, you know, sharing content that would inspire others was a big driver. So, you know, that, you know, I think underpins why you've got a lot of the, you know, chase giving and, you know, you want to really sort of be a part of that community. But when it came to automotive, the emotion of excitement was the most compelling thing. And, you know, again, that makes sense, right? It's like news about a new vehicle or a new technology or just something that was sort of share worthy there. So it sort of contextually made sense by vertical, but it was really amazing how much content in each category did not fit any of that mold. And, you know, and I think that that gave a really clear answer for why, you know, people might have seen it and still enjoyed it, but they didn't find it so valuable that they wanted to pass it along to everyone they've ever known and loved. Interesting. Yeah. And when you think about online and influence online compared to influence offline, you know, do you see that them as two separate worlds or are there kind of linkages between the two kind of virtual or online versus offline? 
I think that they can be expressed very differently by platform, but the human impulse and sort of inclination behind it is really the same, whether it's coming to, you know, in a bar, um, you know, with someone who's incredibly compelling or someone who you want to be a little more like or whatever it is, or whether it's coming to you via an Instagram story. Like, I think that human impulse is the same. It's just... You know, it used to be that if you, you know, unless you were a real world, you know, film or TV celebrity, you just didn't have that platform. Whereas now, you know, that platform has been really democratized and it just comes down to how compelling is the stuff that you're creating? How important is it to the lives of others? And if it's important, it really doesn't matter if you're um, sitting as a personal trainer in Adelaide. I mean, you know, that's Mm -hmm. one of the biggest Instagram influencers in history sort of came from a from really small town in Australia, whether you're in LA or New York or San Francisco, one of the uh, one of the biggest sort of more obvious places. And talk to me about the role of influencers. How, how crucial are they in kind of influencing sharing or the acceptance of a particular campaign or sponsored content? So much more important than most people would like to think. You know, if you just take a step back and look influences just by volume. So let's say you add up all of the social media engagement. Um, you know, let's just look at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just, just for, uh, for kicks this morning. Yes. You added up everything that was generated by all the most compelling social brands. So BuzzFeed, the NBA, National Geographic, like all the big leaders. Right. And you compare that to the engagement generated by a subset of influencers and creators in the US, influencers would account for about 75% of all of that activity. That's crazy. It's so crazy. <laughs> the first time my team brought that number to me, I you know, this was probably like a year and a half ago, I just went, absolutely not. Like, <laughs> But it's it's borne out over time and it we see it over and over. And it really comes down to, you know, a couple of things, right? Like people trust people. People trust even people that they know are brand supported because there's something about that human connection that's just different to coming at you from something that's a little more faceless. And we, we actually did a, a great study with one of our partners at a company called Fullscreen, who uh, do a lot in the influencer space. And we partnered up on a study that wanted to understand this question of trust and to what degree do people uh, who are engaging with influencer content about products actually go on and take some sort of action, whether it's making a purchase or trying something out. And for the most difficult segment, you know, to reach arguably the 18 to 24s, only 10% of people said that they had never taken some sort of commercial action after engaging with an influencer's post um, about a product. And this is like a self-report, right? And if you're self-reporting that it's just 10%, it's probably less because we always think that we do, you know, we we always think that we're less, you know, influenced by advertising than than perhaps we are. Um, So that was really, you know, that was a really powerful result for us and, and just sort of underscored like, hey, there's not just a lot of activity, it really it really does matter. Now you have to navigate all of the stuff to do with, you know, making sure that you're partnering up with the right influencers and that you're not 
you know, paying for the wrong metrics or for someone who has perhaps gamed the system. And that's where measurement really comes in and, and getting you that transparency so that brands can make decisions with confidence. But, but yeah, it's just an impossible to ignore space. I just wanted to make sure I understood what you said. So between the 18 to 24 segment, when asked that consumers said that they took 90% of the consumers said they took some commercial action based on influencers recommendation or post. Is that right? Exactly. Whether they bought a product, whether they researched and tried out a brand, you know, etc. Only 10% said they'd never done any of those things. It's amazing. So the influencers really are like their own publication or their own, I don't know what the word is, but it seems like they have their own audience and then advertisers and then come in and, and monetize their audience for based on what their trust level is with that influencer. Exactly. And I think that there were a couple of different things when uh, you talk about trust. And interestingly, trust for celebrities was actually the lowest. And it wasn't low, but if you compared it to a macro influencer who had, you know, genuinely risen through the digital ranks. Right. The- or she like loved something, whether it was gaming or makeup or watermelon, like whatever. But it was genuine. Um, Yes. It was genuine, you know, and there was always that sense of like, you know, and I I've mentioned before, um, you know, the fitness trainer from Adelaide, right? Like Kyla Itzins, one of the biggest success stories when it came to being an, an Instagram influencer and just built this fitness empire, you know, but she started as a 26 year old fitness instructor on Instagram posting how-tos and tips and things to do with that. And it just kind of spiraled from there. So, you know, so, and I think the thing with celebrities is, you know, people kind of go, well, you know, I sort of know that this celebrity isn't really using this yoga mat, but it still makes me feel closer to her. So I'm going to buy it anyway, but I kind of know that it's not really, you know, but we still do it, right? Because the pull is so powerful but people do have a sense of like you know maybe it's not entirely authentic whereas you know if you have devoted five years of your life to making fitness videos every week like yes this fitness company might be paying you to showcase their product but there's a real sense of like you wouldn't do it if you thought it was crap because this is really what you do and you just wouldn't go there you wouldn't you know you wouldn't misrepresent a crappy product because it's just not who you are. And there's that real feeling. I guess the word that comes to mind is authentic. That They're showing their online presence that represents their day-to-day life, basically. It sure does. Exactly. But yeah, look, I think we are still scratching the surface of what's possible in the creator space. You know, there's also at the same time, some really amazing things happening with branded content, both in the creator space, as well as across media and publishing. But it's, you know, it's just a really exciting time because I feel like the way that we advertise and and all of that is really being shifted pretty drastically. And I'm, you know, I think the new formats are are cool and enjoyable and, you know, much more consumer centric. And I, I just think that's an exciting time to be, to be innovating. It is exciting. I, I wanted to ask you, I know you and I met at a, I think post GDPR panel and we talked a lot about privacy. Nice, light, happy topic. Yeah, yeah, but very, very important. Talk to me about your perspective on issues related to privacy. Obviously you, you deal with it 
quite, you know, given the fact that you're measuring a lot of what's going on on, on the social media space, what's your perspective? Gosh, uh, so, so actually, so we just had our first summit last week, Interact, and privacy was a, was a big topic. We actually okay. you know, ran a primer for it. You know, there's a couple things, right? There's the stuff that I think is really important for consumers to understand. And, you know, educating individual consumers on this isn't really uh, necessarily the role of a company like Shareably, but, you know, the thing that I'm very active in personally, because I just think a more informed population is just a much more powerful one. You know, if you don't understand the data that you are, you know, throwing off about yourself every time you do something online, then you're going to feel blindsided when that data is then used in ways that you didn't even know were within scope because you didn't just didn't understand. So I think education transparency is really, really important. And I know that there have been big inroads made, but I, I do think there's a lot more that needs to be done. You know, I'm, I'm on a council for the World Economic Forum and sort of the subgroup that I'm heading up is really all about going, how can we make it interesting and funny and engaging for consumers to actually own their own data and understand their own data? And it's like no mean feat, right? Because right. You know, not everyone's like rushing off to the cinemas. How to manage their data. Right, like people tend to only get activated when something goes wrong. But I believe that that's, you know, that's the wrong way to go about it. So I think that's a big first step. But then I think, you know, secondly, as a company, you always want to make sure, and, and we always have done, like I came, you know, before I started Shareably, I was with a company called Comscore who had built online panels. So, you know, privacy was always top of mind. And, you know, I'm, I'm an attorney, right? So I right. always worry about, you know, making sure that you're on the, the right side of history. So we've always been very, very far to the conservative side when it comes to privacy. And a lot of companies haven't done. And, you know, sometimes that probably slowed us down, right? And there were things that we couldn't do because we just thought it was too edgy. But, you know, I think that there's so much you can do within the parameters of protecting the consumer and doing things in the right way. But, you know, it's you know, on, on the one hand, it's tough because the, the privacy landscape right now is, you know, it's really scary for a lot of companies. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you don't have a DPO and if you don't have like all of the legal support, it's kind of tough to know what to do, I think, for many smaller companies. But I personally think it's a great thing for our industry because it does put in a little bit of a speed bump. But ultimately, it means that we're building, you know, a much more even keeled thoughtful future ecosystem that is balanced and takes into account things before candidly they're on fire when you look back it's like i just think that is the right thing for our society even though i know it can be frustrating you know you know we're not on the targeting side but i'm sure if you were on that side it would be tough because because it has gotten a lot trickier but you know, in the end, it's like once that, you know, once the horse has sort of left the barn, it's very hard to bring it back in. And I do think that the way things are evolving are going to be much better for the consumer and therefore much better and more sustainable for our industry. Well, yeah, I completely agree. I think transparency is important. I also think there's benefits for consumers to share their information if used properly, right? I think we talked about this idea of having more targeted ads that are relevant to a specific consumer instead of wading through tons of non-applicable content that they don't really want to see. I, I mean, that's one example. So I do think that there's benefits to it. And, you know, obviously there's, we all have an ethical responsibility to use it wisely as well. Yeah, we, we sure do. 
So switching gears, what are the things that you are excited about in the future or that kind of are driving your roadmap for Shareably? Yeah, so so a couple big themes. One is I'm so excited. I mentioned before um, branded content and the branded content ecosystem, but I'm like really excited that publishers have found a way to start to build sustainable money-making businesses on social media. Like that's great. And it means that they can partner up more effectively with advertisers. It means that platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and YouTube are really facilitating a very fast-growing industry, you know, and of course, you know, we work with companies on both sides. So it's huge opportunity there, but we do fair amount of advertising effectiveness on these new formats. And, you know, the the early results are just incredibly compelling. And it it sort of gives me more confidence that this is the way that our industry should be going um, across this. So, you know, so we're definitely doubling down on, on how to support that ecosystem. So meaning, Tanya, just so I clarify, publishers are actually able to measure the effectiveness of ads and, and being able to measure kind of the return on investment to ensure that its viability continues to sustain. Exactly. So let's say, you know, I, um, I'm overseeing um, Great Big Story and I've got this terrific sort of online video and publishing brand. And I'm, you know, I have this opportunity to partner up with like a leading travel brand, like maybe it's okay. online or something. So then, you know, at the end of the campaign, so I've made these, you know, really engaging videos that are my videos, but that also maybe mention the advertiser or have some call out. And then after that, I want to go back to my advertiser with more proof that it went well than just the number of impressions or the yes. number of views, right? So how else can you talk about how people felt or how it otherwise moved the needle? So that sort of thing. And, you know, and you could replace Great Big Story with, you know, TNT drama or with Kyla It Seems, the, the influencer. So it's whoever is like a creator of, of this sort of content. So that's... You know, that's a really exciting ecosystem because yes. it really means that people are starting to to play for dollars. And it means, you know, as, as the founder of someone who's built a business on this ecosystem, it's great to see yes. <laughs> dollars start to exchange hands because if dollars are just going in one direction, it's, uh, it's never a good thing. So I think that's one thing. And I think the second thing that we're really focused on is how to, uh, you know, I think ideologically at Shareably, we've always tracked. So, you know, every brand that we track, we're tracking the same sorts of insights for. So it's it's parity, which means that at any time you can go and benchmark with any brand anywhere in the world. But I think the future is also the melding of other sorts of private data. I mean, data that's private to that brand so that they can see everything that is a third party data set alongside some of their own private data. And we want to make sure that we power that too, because I think the the stack can get so complicated. And I think the future is a real, you know, creative, thoughtful, actionable melding of private and and more third party data sets so that marketers can make decisions. It's like when I look at the ecosystem, it's just still way too disconnected. But I have a really important role in bringing that all together and making it much easier to know what you have on your hands and to be able to, to make a decision on what to do next. Our industry a lot. I think a lot of companies see the opportunity. And to your point, it's still disaggregated. And even within the brand organizations, a lot of that data sits in different organizations 
solutions. So it'll be interesting to see how not only are the data ecosystem shifts, but also how the brand organizations shift as well to accommodate all this data. You're absolutely right. And, you know, and I think it's, um, you know, and I've listened to, to some of your, your podcasts and, you know, you've covered machine learning and AI and all this really, really important stuff. And it's exactly what people should be thinking about. And before they can think about it, they need to make sure they can pipe all their data into the same place. Right. And start to do, you know, so like sometimes it's the, the really unglamorous stuff to do with data aggregation, normalizing, yes. you know, all this sort of stuff. And it was actually, it was a big topic at our conference recently because everyone wants to talk about the cool stuff, which is like machine learning and AI. Right. By the way, so do we, right? Like we've yeah. got amazing data scientists, but I'm aware that for the most part, the, your first biggest problem is plumbing, just how to bring it all together. So, you know, we want to help solve that problem too, because when people say, you know, I've I, I don't need more data. What they mean is they don't really know what they have on their hands, right? Yeah, and that's so true. That's the biggest problem. Yeah. Tanya, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really enjoyed it. I feel like we can go on for much longer. So I'd love to have you back on the podcast sometime in the future. That would be amazing. We'd have another data therapy session. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, have care. a good one. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.